You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 2nd of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The latest unlikely comeback of Benjamin Netanyahu. The Arab League meets for the first time in three years and a document famously dictated by we the people could be bought by just one of them. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Rebecca Tinsley and Yossi Meckelberg, will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from Finland's ambassador to the United States as he reflects on a seismic year for his country's diplomacy. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Rebecca Tinsley, founder of Network for Africa and a former BBC journalist, and by Yossi Meckelberg, associate fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, here in the traditional blocked out light introductory banter segment of the programme, um, Rebecca, you were hinting tantalisingly in the waiting room beforehand that you had things you wished to tell us about peanut butter. As the actor said to the bishop, I do. Um, we're, we're, tr- we're trying to maintain a certain tone here, Rebecca, honestly. I'm sorry, it is monocle radio. Classy. <coughs> exactly. Um, a couple of years ago, um, my little charity, working in northern Uganda, came across a young man, aged 23, his name was Samuel, and because he had epilepsy, he was chained up. And unfortunately, this is uh, more common than you would like to think in places where people believe epilepsy is... Um, a sign of being possessed, uh, demonically uh, possessed. We, uh, our little uh, charity, persuaded his family to unchain him. We gave him a course of um, psychotherapy and we got him on drugs. And I found out uh, just yesterday that Samuel uh, is now prospering. We also incidentally uh, taught him to farm and he is proudly showing us his beautiful vegetable garden and he also grows peanuts. And he sent me yesterday a jar of the most delicious peanut butter I have ever tasted (laughs) in my life. And it makes that stuff they sell in America just taste as ghastly as, of course, you, Andrew, were saying earlier. (laughs) This is North North Ugandan peanut butter is simply the most delicious thing in the world. Are are you and Samuel now in talks to try and franchise this delight to the rest of the world? I mean, it it sounds like he's onto something. It really, I, I cannot tell you how much better Ugandan peanuts are compared with these horrible big industrial things you get from other places. So, yeah, roll it out. That is an outstanding story, and well done, Samuel, if you're listening. Um, I don't, I'm sure there are peanut butter eaters here at Monocle if you'd like to send us a jar. We could, we could get the menu, our food and drink program, to do a whole thing on it. There are just so many things you can do with peanut butter, but I know this is a family show. So. Uh, well, indeed. Um, y- Yossi, in order to main, maintain the thematic coherence of the light introductory banter segment of the program, do, do you have anything on peanut butter or really any other sort of sandwich spread? <laughs> I actually confess not to be a great fan of peanut butter until ah, I was controversial. actually very controversial, especially when you say it in the United States in the middle of a supermarket. However, I discovered the, the pretzels that are filled with peanut butter and this has opened a completely new world to me. 
That sounds like the worst thing I've ever heard of, Yossi, and I've heard of some things. I thought about like, exactly the same before I experienced it. So some things you have to experience first. I suspect I'm never going to know. Um, we will start the show proper with Israel, which appears to have decided that Benjamin Netanyahu has not, in fact, delighted us all enough. The votes cast in yesterday's general election, Israel's fifth in a bit over three years, if anyone's still keeping count, have all but certainly awarded Netanyahu a third stint and sixth term. I think those numbers are right, as Prime Minister. Netanyahu will have to govern in coalition, as Israeli Prime Ministers always do, and his potential partners are, for a change, the subject of even more consternation than Netanyahu himself, the far-right, clue-in-the-name, religious Zionists bloc. Um, Yossi, first of all, let us, let us cover ourselves against potential embarrassment by developments. Um, is he definitely back? Is there any way at all from here that this doesn't happen? He's definitely back in one way or another. They counted so far 86% mm -hmm. of the votes. Now you have the diplomats, the soldiers, because they're all in, in, in double envelopes. So mm. they are, they're going to the centers. and they, But it's likely that among the young, the right actually win even in bigger proportion. Uh, in, in Israeli election. So I think it looks like this. But there are two parties that are very close to the threshold. One is uh, Meretz, the left-wing party, 3.19, while the threshold is 3.25. And that's the threshold to get any representation and in the, the Knesset at all? Four members of Knesset. And then the Israeli-Palestinian Arab party, Balad, they are 3.04. So everything can change as they finish. So, and this, of course, will change if they get into it, means there is less. The, the, the numbers are closer. So now it looks like 65 to 55 out of the 120. Mm. It might go down to 62 to 58. So the, the likelihood is Netanyahu, yeah, he probably will be back as, as prime minister. But as you said, it's what worries us not only about someone that faces a court case for three cases of corruption. As we speak, you know, the court case is, is going on, but also his partners. Mm. Now, I'm not completely sure that he actually will go with the far right or only with the far right. Netanyahu, despite his rhetoric, is a very conservative, a very cautious leader. Mm. And he probably don't want to sit with the Bengvirs and the Smotrich and these guys. That are real, they are racist, they are, they are very similar to neo-fascists, the messianic, you know, I can go on and on and on. We, we, we he would like to have some responsible adults uh, in, in, in the room when he has to take decisions about Iran, about the Hezbollah, about other issues. Uh, we will come back to his potential coalition partners, because as you have foreshadowed there, Yossi, there is a lot going on there. But, um, Rebecca, to Netanyahu himself, this is, as I was saying, the fifth election in three years. And it's the fifth election in three years during which there's been a conventional wisdom that this election is when you boil everything else away, basically a referendum on Benjamin Netanyahu. It, it is extraordinary, isn't it, that the, the politics of a country, even a, even a reasonably small country, uh, can be so dominated for so long uh, by one self-evidently divisive figure. It is indeed. And since I'm not an expert, I, if, if I might, I'd actually like to ask Yossi this. There was a 71% 70, turnout in this election. Mm. Now, we over here look at this and think how you know how so many elections you know so often and yet people still turn out you see 
I mean, it's, it's, what it's, does this it's, tell it's, us about... It's, it's habit-forming at this point, right? <laughs> but, but it's, ex- yeah. it's yeah. actually quite sort of heartening that people still think it's worth turning out. Why did they? Yeah, I think what Anne said, the way that people go to the pub, people easily <laughs> are going to, to election. No, I think this is the highest since 2005. And I think people thought that this is a crucial one. A lot of what is known as the Gewalt campaign, scaring everything. If you're not going to vote, and Netanyahu is very good at it, then the other party will take and then Israel is going to collapse, or it's sold to the Arabs, and these are going, the Iranians are going to take it. So it's a lot of this scaremongering going on. So they managed actually to bring a lot of their, uh, of their supporters. It's still lower among the Arab Israelis than among the Jewish population, which distorts uh, distorts the elections or the representation. It also tells you that if the, the numbers, the turnout among uh, Jewish Israelis is higher, it means also those who don't believe in solution, in peaceful solution with the Palestinian among the Jewish population is even much higher. Mm. So it it's actually complicates the, the point. But a lot of it, when I look here at the figures, there were also tactical mistakes by the, some of the parties on the left side of the party. While Netanyahu managed to consolidate the bloc that supports him, on the other side, there were a lot of egos refusing to consolidate in going in alliances together. So if, for instance, Meretz doesn't cross the threshold, it means that hundreds of thousands of votes are just lost. And this gives much power. So I think it's all you need to play in Israeli politics when you have so many parties and turnout is important and alliances are crucial, how you play all of it in order to be in the position that Netanyahu is today. Yossi, just on the subject of those potential coalition partners, and I I will now shamelessly plug that the Foreign Desk Explainer this week, which will go live fairly shortly, does go into this a bit. (laughs) But you mentioned the the character Itamar Ben-Gvir, who leads a party who's name translates as Jewish strength or Jewish power. Um, He's quite a way out there, isn't he, to understate matters wildly? This is a person that was convicted twice for uh, uh, supporting terrorism. Uh, Convicted twice out of dozens and dozens of indictments and charges. Oh, obviously, (laughs) you know, you can have a long lit and it will take all the program of the thing that he's doing. And, and he lives in Hebron, which is the most extreme of the Jewish settlers, because even it's mm-hmm. not a monolithic group. So the most extreme of the Jewish settlers live inside Hebron, and they harass Palestinians as, as, as a matter of daily activity there. But he managed, is in a way, in his own way, is quite sophisticated, in a way that he managed to appeal to people actually from the other bloc. Mm. While Netanyahu and the other, and the religious party, the ultra-Orthodox, Aguda, and the rest, they have their supporters, they always support them, but it's very rigid. He, in his own way, which is very difficult for us to understand, appeals also to other communities within Israel. And, and some people say, actually, the next prime minister from the right is not going to come from the Likud. It might be Itamar Ben-Gvir. Now, that scares Netanyahu. He's the one that legitimized them. He legitimized Ben Gvir and Smotrich and, and the Zion, religious Zionism. Now, he thought that he can adjust it exactly to the numbers that he wanted. Like, give me 10 of them. <laughs> but it doesn't work like this in politics. So they are too strong for his liking. And he might say, if they start to demand, because they could as 32, they start asking, for instance, someone that was convicted in court will ask to be the minister for internal security, basically 
<laughs> in charge of the police. It makes that doesn't make sense unless you're in Israeli politics. <laughs> so he tried to now I think Netanyahu, the minute that these results are confirmed, he will try to minimize the damage. The problem, both sides change themselves. Netanyahu say, I'm not going with the parties that say that they will never sit with me. And the, those who said they never sit with him can't sit with him. So the question now they might come and say, you know what? In order to save the country from the Bengvirs and Smotrich of this world, which is then, if you know, from the neo-fascist, from the messianic, the racist, we have to, to do that. And this will be an interesting. I don't think it should be. I think if that's what the Israelis want, let them have a taste of it. Well, I, for one, am looking forward to the next Israeli election, probably in about <laughs> mid-February. But, but moving seamlessly along, a, a conclave which can be reckoned unlikely to raise three hearty cheers for Netanyahu's resurgence is the Arab League summit occurring this week in Algiers and a big hello to all our listeners in the Algerian capital. It is the first full-blown Arab League wingding since before the COVID-19 pandemic and the gathering includes notably more countries which have normalised relations with Israel than the the 2019 gathering. Nevertheless, Algerian President Abdel Majid Taboun, whose country still refuses to recognise Israel, has tried to wind up his guests about continuing to support Palestine. Um, Rebecca, he described it as our central and primary cause. Uh, but is it really? It's just the usual rhetoric that mm. you get from Arab politicians when they want to distract their own citizens from the fact that um, their politicians are responsible for corruption and political, well, basket cases. Uh, you know, it, it is just like American politicians on the right talking about abortion and gay rights and uh, all that nonsense. Um, it's just, I, if the Arabs had wanted to do something about Palestine, they would have done it an awful long time ago because they do have a lot of leverage. But the truth is, they don't. And if I might, I have a little bit of um, history with the Arab League um, because I, I tried quite hard to get them to take an interest in Sudan because I actually took them at their word when they said first that they wanted Arab solutions to Arab problems mm -hmm. and secondly that there was some kind of Arab solidarity. Um, and of course it turns out that their real priority is getting immunity from prosecution from all their leaders. That's just like the African Union. That's what they actually care about. So they have failed to take an interest on Sudan, Iraq, Yemen, Lebanon, and Syria. Uh, you know, in each case, it was an Arab problem. There was no Arab solution offered. Instead, they held up their hands in horror and asked the UN to do something, which, of course, the UN proved incapable of doing. And so then I wondered, well... Is it actually that they care about Muslims? Well, guess what? They didn't, you know, we've had the Rohingya being persecuted. We've got the, Ugu the Uyghurs being stuffed into concentration camps. And of course, we've had the slaughter of half a million people in Darfur. And that was another reason I was approaching the Arab the, the League. The concern tends to be more about who is doing the oppressing rather than who is Abs being oppressed. Absolutely. And, you know, if you don't happen to be an Arab Muslim, they really don't care about you. And if you're a black... African Muslim, you're right at the bottom of the heap. So, 
as I say, what they really care about is immunity from prosecution. And in that respect, they are just as useless as the Commonwealth and the African Union. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On that heartwarming thought, um, Yossi, among those present in Algiers is the Palestinian president, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, but he's kind of a personification of the problem at this point, isn't he? He's 86 years old, and again, if I've done the maths right, he's now 17 years into his first five-year term uh, as president. Uh, He can't govern. He is by general reckoning a fairly monstrous crook um it, it's it, this it goes nowhere does it i mean e- even if netanyahu having installed himself as prime minister had some sort of damascene thing and decided you know what i'm going to do i'm going to pull the full-blown ian paisley 180 degree skid on this and go out as a peacemaker who would he even talk to uh, that's a good question I think uh, the situation right now, no one wants to talk peace and the international community is not interested interested either. But yeah, it's, it, that's a problem. He stretched, the, you know, there is a democratic deficit in Palestine. Mm. You know, we talk about 17 years since since the last election, but go beyond this. No, no one in the television to my Palestinian friends, how do you expect to be taken seriously if such a small nation is divided between two territories in Gaza and in, in the West Bank? You can't hold election, you can't talk to one another. And I, I don't think they need a unity government, but you have, they need a united political system to work together. Abbas became more and more authoritarian. And when you go to the, to the West Bank, you hear more complaints about, about the Palestinian Authority than you hear about, about, about the occupation, which you won't expect it. Mm. Because the way that they handled themselves, and, and the other thing which has became a taboo, you talk to, 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 to very senior people, uh, Palestinian people said, are you going to put your you know, head in the ring in case of Abbas, because we know that at 86, something will happen eventually. So are you going and say, no, no, as long as the Rais, the president is there, we don't talk about succession. But you know that behind closed doors, of course, they, they must talk about, about that. But no one will put said, it's time to move on, including people that spend years in Israeli jails and really fought for, for the mm. cause. They won't actually dare to challenge Abbas. So with this kind of democratic deficit, with this unity, there is, it, they almost justify what the Israelis said, where is the partner? I think also the Israelis play on these things and they want Abbas to stay as long as possible because he became a subcontractor for Israel's security, while at mm. the same time there is no political, uh, uh, political uh, progress. And this is the, the, the tragic situation, I think, for the Palestinians. But in, in a way, what we see now in Israel politics is an outcome of more than 50 years of occupation. Uh, Rebecca, another subplot uh, of the Arab League conclave has been a curious tiptoeing around Russia. Uh, Also in his introductory remarks, uh, President Taboon of Algeria mentioned what he described, and I quote, as exceptional global conditions are creating polarisation which is impacting our food security. But he did not at any point mention the, you know, not impertinent fact that Russia has invaded Ukraine. Well, I guess he won't because he probably wants to be able to buy their weapons. That's quite weird in itself, though, that there's still a market for Russian weapons because the last 10 months have not been much of an advertisement for them. Well, they don't care about that, do they? They're just strutting their stuff and buying toys. And Kalachnikovs are rather popular. More people have been killed by Kalachnikov since 1945 by by any other weapon. It's It's still a good product. Yeah. Yeah. For what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, and why would they care? Why would why would the Arab League stick its neck out on Russia when it can just hunker down like 
so many other countries in Africa. But just a final quick thought. America, a final know. quick thought on this one, Rebecca. How much does the Arab League genuinely matter? Because it was also notable that um, Mohammed bin Salman, Crown Prince and de facto ruler of Saudi Saudi Arabia, found other things to do with his week. And King Mohammed the Sixth of Morocco, who really wouldn't have had far to travel, uh, couldn't be bothered either. It doesn't matter at all for all the reasons I've I've said. It's just a talking shop. Uh, you know, and uh, I would have—I'd be amazed if most Arabs even know that it exists. Well, on the back of that uh, advertisement for the Arab League, we will take a long, hard look at Russia, even if the Arab League was determined not to. Uh, Russia has today revealed itself as an abject non-understander of the crucial rule of the flounce, which is that if one is going to flounce, one must commit to the flounce. The flounce to be executed effectively must be a strictly one-way proposition. Nobody looks more ridiculous than an unflouncer. Nevertheless, Russia has unflounced back into the agreement which allows Ukrainian grain shipments to traverse the Black Sea unmolested, a matter of days after flouncing because Ukraine droned its Black Sea fleet. Um, Yossi, why has, uh, why has Russia unflounced? I think one of the reasons that you see that Russia and the decision-making in Russia is completely in disarray. They didn't expect to be in this position eight months, you know, 252 days now after the war began, they didn't expect to be in this situation because Putin was, was promised by his defense minister that they will be to do business, you know, it will all be done in three days. Now, 250 days into this, then a completely new situation. And on the one hand, they want to inflict a hybrid war, whether it's gas, grain, sunflower, refugees. But at the same time, if they do that, they also inflict pain on themselves because they need to export also their, their own commodities. So they're in a situation that what they do, how can they come out of this war? And militarily, they're not going to win this war, probably. And, and diplomatically, the question is now for the regime is to protect itself, that they will come out of it in one piece, not Russia, but, but Putin and the people around him. So we'll see, I think, this vacillation in their policies all the time because of pressure either domestically or that come from, from the outside. They can also upset, upset the West too much because the next thing that they see that the, the West supply Ukraine with even more sophisticated weapons that they need to, to encounter. It, it does seem though, does it not, that, that, I mean, Putin doesn't listen to many people, but he does seem to pay attention when Turkey has a go at him. And Erdogan did seem to be active on this, saying, come on, you've got to let those grain ships go. But that, that was another interesting subplot to this, in that Russia flounced from this deal and everybody else just went, righto. Uh, and, and the ships kept sailing. So the, the, the question is, have we learned something there about the merits of calling Russia's bluff? I hope we have. But at the same time, you know, much as I would love to mock Russia, um, as, as a holder of a British passport and someone who pays my tax in this country, I can't help but notice um, that only a few weeks ago, uh, our government was telling us that tax was evil and the only way to get growth in our economy was to have ma massively reduced taxes and within a matter of hours we are now being told 
that we have to pay more tax, probably. Also, um, there was the fracking where we weren't going to have it, then we were, then we're, now we're not going to have it again. So that was a bit of a flounce. Um, we've been told over the summer that how we mustn't have immigrants. My God, we, could, we don't want any more of these people. And then suddenly, actually, it would be rather a good idea to have immigrants because they could work in our care homes. Y- your, your, point, your, your point being that the unflounce is not necessarily uniquely Russian. COP27, mm. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, Mr. Sunak finds out that his arch enemy Boris is going to the party. So I want an invitation to the party. That is a flounce of all flounces. Uh, F-35s, we found out today that the government decided we need more F-35s, but they didn't train enough pilots. So we don't have enough pilots now to fly our F-35s. Is that not a flounce? Dope. We were told a few days ago, weren't we, that this was going to be a class A drug. And then we've. What's happened to that? So, you know, don't really think. And onshore wind wind uh, turbines. I don't think we're in any position to <laughs> gloat, really. <laughs> um, one thing I think we can gloat about, because the the United Kingdom, though it has flirted with this over the last six years, hasn't gone all in on it. Um, Yossi, just your view. The curious tone that Russia's diplomatic discourse always takes is is so at odds with the kind of country Russia is, or perhaps should be, which is, of course, that Russia is a vast, powerful, mighty country with a a spectacular history and enormous uh, cultural heritage, and yet it addresses the world mostly in tones of self-pitying whining. Uh, And that's what happened this week. They complained that the people whose country they invaded bombed their fleet. That's the kind of thing you're allowed to do when somebody invades your country. Yeah, but I think if you go to the history of Russia, there's always a sense of vulnerability. Even when they attack other... It's 11 time zones wide. Correct. (laughs) But look at the experience. Actually, you know, the fact that they're paranoid doesn't mean that they don't have enemies or someone on their back. Mm. And from Napoleonic times, they were invaded. They're easy to invade, especially through the Ukraine, because this is relatively it's, flat it's land. It's been a while, though. Yeah, le- well, let's move on. But from <laughs> the Napoleonic time, uh, Nazi Germany, you know, this was... And in the, in the, in the collective memory of, of Russia, it's still alive. I know it doesn't look that likely, but the way they look at the world is they see the vulnerability of Russia. They don't see the aggression of Russia. When we look here about the way they behave, whether in Syria, the way they behave in the past in, in, in Afghanistan, in definitely now in Ukraine, you say this is an aggressive country that attacks other countries. But they behave according to their perception, not necessarily through objective prism. Well, it's so sad. It is just so desperately sad that they embrace their victimhood when they do. you know they 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 should be telling the reminding the world that it was they who put Yuri Gagarin into space. Before, you know, while the Americans were still twiddling their yeah. their fingers, that it was they who had the, the the beautiful constructivist art movement that basically you know created twentieth century modern art. And you could go on and on and on. But the Stravinsky's, I mean, Shostakovich. These people invented modern symphonic music. Tolstoy, Tostoyevsky, all of this great... But at the same time, they even see the end of the Cold War is one big conspiracy against against Russia. Gorbachev is a collaborator. You know, Gorbachev was very popular everywhere but Russia. (laughs) 
Well, we will move along to an item which encourages leaden jokes about American politics being up for sale to the highest bidder to write themselves. Next month, Sotheby's will auction one of only 13 known remaining original 1787 vintage copies of the Constitution of the United States and only and one of only two, rather, which are privately owned. The seller of this one may be encouraged by last year's auction of the other one, which fetched $43.2 million. Um, are either of you tempted at that price or thereabouts? <laughs> I am. Because, because, because I would like to parade this document through every church and school classroom in America, and I would like to show people how very old this document is. And I would say to them, you see, there's no mention of traffic lights in this document, so therefore we have to look at it in context. And if there's no mention of traffic lights, and therefore, you know, we're not going to ban traffic lights, there's also no mention of interfering with women's bodies. You, you propose to try this line of reasoning on people who are still reading the Bible, literally, which does rather predate the Constitution of the United States. But it's very selectively reading the Bible. Yeah, I, I pretty selectively reading the Constitution as well. They yeah. certainly are. But if I could give a non-snide response, because I know this is a classy show, <laughs> um, my non-snide response would be that I think that, you know, as a matter of principle, if these historical documents are going to be sold... The least that we could require is that they put them on public display for, say, three months a year. Because mm. there are places like, for instance, the Huntington Library in, in L.A., which is a fantastic private library, but it has a magnificent collection of historic documents. Lots of Shakespeare folios and things like that. Um, and, you know, it, it should be at least something that we stipulate when people are selling, you know, selling England by the pound, to quote Genesis. Uh, well, no. they, they tried to do this last year, or a, a collective tried to do this last yeah. year. There was a crowdfunded attempt to buy the one sold last year to put it on public display, but they were outbid by a hedge fund guy uh, who does now own it himself. But my thought, Yossi, is that, I mean, $43 million, I'm not knocking it. It's, it's you know, it's it's nearly twice what I make in a year. But um, but to the, to something like the US federal government, it's it's not that much money. And surely something like this, that's where the US federal government should say, you know what, we the people should own this thing. We're going to buy it on their behalf. Yeah, I think actually it shows all the idea that something, such an important document, and I completely agree with you, Becky, that this is something that we should go and address the concerns Constitution in the United States, but also the United, outside the United States, is one of the most important documents that came in the last three, four hundred years. You know, but at the same time, it shows a kind of the, the naked capitalism that you know that such an important document. It's about how much it, it's worth, and I can put it in my safe somewhere and say that it's worth 40, 40, 40 million dollars. And I think what is important is actually to print a lot of them. For few uh, for few cents and give it to to students and I agree the interpretation the first amendment and and, well, and you can and read it for nothing on your phone right away oh you can well you pay for this now you're just now you're just being outlandish <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but and actually you know look at the bill of rights and try to put it as you say in the context of the twenty first it's not about carrying guns in the middle of of Queens in New York. It, freedom of speech is not about Alex Jones going and harassing people that lost their kids in a mass shooting, that he support actually them having weapons. So this, this is maybe, this discussion is an opportunity to go back to the Constitution, what it was all about. 
I actually wrote a piece, you know, a few months ago that there is a time for a new convention. Everyone goes, they can go back to Philadelphia or can go somewhere else and rewrite so the Philadelphia is nice? Yeah, yeah, I'm not against it. I think it's mm. beautiful. And, and they can have another bell even. And, and, then, and, then, and then actually rewrite the constitution that, as you say, reflects 21st century, the, the, the realities. And also the reality that parts of the United States, you know, very different from one another. So I, I, I'm sure a 21st century American constitutional convention as well, Yossi, would be an absolute model of common sense, uh, <laughs> collegial pragmatism and, and good fellowship all around. I if, certainly can't see that igniting a second civil war. Is it because you think Trump is going to chair it? Uh, you reckon he'd want to. Um, Can I just say that the, the one historic document that I'd really like to get my hands on is the original screenplay for Casablanca. Who owns that? It's probably available. It probably is. But that's that's a historic but document see, but, worth having. But this this is what I wonder about this whole thing, which is that if I had $40 million, you know, lying around to spend uh, on a whim, I'm not sure I would spend it on a 235-year-old document, which I would presumably need to keep in a safe, wouldn't be able to touch uh, or look at. Uh, do you think the... So what about, what about the Egg McMuffin recipe, the <coughs> KFC recipe? Um, you pay for that? Probably it's a, it's not an American historic. Probably document not forty for million dollars. But but should but should the rule are the rules or should the rules be different for documents as opposed to you know great paintings or sculptures? There's an obvious compelling argument for the great visual artwork being put on public display. That's the entire point of it. But it's not really the entire point of a constitution. Well, especially when it, you know this is the basis of America, you would think they would value it enough to to buy it. Mm. It belongs to the people. It doesn't belong to to someone. And as you say, to put it in a in, in a safe somewhere, and they will see it as an investment that maybe in ten years it will worth sixty million, and then you can sell it all. It's yeah, it belongs to the people. It should be on display, and sh people should cherish it. But to but to Yossi's point, you know, we should it should be honoured as a historic document and seen in context. But you can honour it, and you can also seek a twenty. <laughs> 21st century version that, that, that lives. Rebecca Tinsley and Yossi Mackelberg, thank you for joining us. Finally on today's show, Finland's ambassador to the United States, Miko Hutala, has had a busy year. Since Russia invaded Ukraine in February and Finland applied shortly afterwards to join NATO, the diplomat has been crisscrossing Washington, D.C. on behalf of his nation while sharing his insights as Helsinki's former man in Moscow. Monocle's Gregory Scruggs sat down with Ambassador Hutala during a recent, recent rather, mission to Seattle. He began by explaining how his work has changed since Russia attacked Ukraine and Finland applied to join NATO. Well, it has changed rather dramatically. We have to, had to focus almost exclusively on NATO issue starting from, let's say, March. So I've been really busy with that. I had to visit sort of the Congress all the time. And of course, we were really happy that the Senate actually approved the Finnish accession in, in already in, in August. So it's been a busy year, mainly focused on, on this war, mainly focused on our NATO accession. But of course now I feel also that we need to stay on track with other dimensions, including the economic relations. Swedish and Finnish officials recently met with their Turkish counterparts in Ankara to discuss implementation of the trilateral agreement first inked at the NATO summit in Madrid back in June that would pave the way for the two countries to join NATO. It seems that Turkey has more objections to Sweden than Finland. Is it still crucial that Finland join at the same time as Sweden, and if so, why? 
I think the best advice we have on this issue is actually when you, if you look at the movie Top Gun, the first part, and there's this flight instructor telling Maverick that never ever leave your wingman. So I think for us, it's really crucial that we stay together. We don't let anybody split us up. I think we know what to do. We have this legal framework. I think there are things that we are doing. So we stick together and we, of course, hope that we will see the results sooner rather than later. Considering the Russia-Ukraine conflict and Finland's likely future role as a NATO member, do you feel like your country's role in the world is changing? And how? Well, it is changing because Finland is becoming a military, sort of an allied country, a member of NATO. It will have long-term effects. First of all, it will help us to optimize and improve the defense of the northern part of the Europe because for the first time in history, we have all the Nordic countries so within under the same sort of security umbrella. So there's a lot of potential for improved cooperation in that field. It will also mean that our posture towards Russia will be slightly different. I think the Russians have realized in the course of this, this sort of developments that uh, Finland was actually rather close to NATO, basically one step away. And in that sense, the application wasn't radical move. It was a basically a last step on the long path towards that. But it will have permanent impact on our relationship with Russia, because definitely in the long run, Russia will react. They will, I expect, they will place more military assets along the border. They will take into account the fact that Finland is a member. So I don't think this is over, even if it would be sort of fully accepted to NATO tomorrow. So there will be longer effects. And I think it's in our interest to make sure that we stay safe, the whole alliance stays solid in this, and, and we can manage and keep this longer process under control so that the change which is now inevitable will be a fully managed one. You recently spoke at the National Nordic Museum in Seattle to a capacity crowd on geopolitical concerns around the Russia-Ukraine conflict, as well as participated in an opening of a photography exhibit about Finnish architect Alvaro Alto. Could you describe Finland's approach to diplomacy in the United States when you are on the road in this vast country? What are you attempting to convey about both Finnish geopolitics and brand Finland? And how do you combine those two goals in your missions throughout the country? I think the key message uh, from me is that uh, I see this conflict and war in Ukraine, the Russian aggression, it's about global order. It's not only about Ukraine. It's not only about where does the Ukrainian eastern border go. So it has global consequences. And I think it's very important that people uh, all across the US, Finland, Europe, we realize that, that we are dealing with uh, an attempt to break the rules, an attempt to rewrite the rules. And if this kind of an attempt will go and get successful, I think all of us who still believe in rules-based order, we will be worse off. So I think it's a common cause. We have to sort of stand up to that challenge. So this is the main message. I think the other message is that Finland and Europeans, together with the U.S., we are in this together. So it's not only a burden on, on the U.S. I think the Europeans, we are sending military help to Ukraine. Most of the European countries are doing the same. So it's a common effort, and we have to understand that we have common interest in making sure that this kind of an attempt to rewrite the rules 
cannot be successful. So I think this bringing this unity on and, and, and making people understand, also understand our specific role and why we are applying for NATO. For me, the key message also is that Finland is militarily strong country. We have been preparing for this kind of a scenario for decades. So I think my case is that uh, to say that Finland is bringing net value, added value to the alliance and, and, and instead of consuming resources. I think this is an important message to people to understand that this unity uh, and collective defense, it brings more power to all of us and, and we need it in this global situation. Finland brand is extremely good here in the US. Of course, this year, Finland has been in the media more than ever before, perhaps. And uh, I think the people are receptive to, to this information. For me, it's really important to make people understand that Finland is not only about this conflict. It's uh, one of the best high-tech countries. Just to give an example, Nokia, most of the US internet traffic goes through via the Nokia networks. So Finland is also economically, technologically present in the US, and we would like to do that even more. Then you have the cultural, the values part. Of course, we, we want to be seen as a part of the mosaic of this discussion in the, in the US. And of course, the Nordic Museum, National Nordic Museum in, in Seattle is, is the perfect place to have this discussion because you have the Nordic heritage, you have this great institution. And like, I, like we saw a couple of nights ago, that there's a huge interest towards that message in, in Seattle. That was Miko Hutala, Finland's ambassador to the United States, speaking to Gregory Scruggs. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panelists today, Rebecca Tinsley and Yossi Meckelberg. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.